Please turn with me to um, Genesis 28, starting at verse 10. If you don't have your Bible, you can turn um, to page 7 in the bulletin. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he, was, in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out over to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be, me, be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I, will, I am taking and will give food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me I will give you a tenth. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. Hey, Metro. Uh, Pastor Donnie here. I know it's unusual to see me on a screen as opposed to being in person. Uh, over the past week, I contracted COVID, and uh, uh, we were kind of monitoring my recovery process. We had initially planned for me to come in and preach in person. We were ready to go. We felt very comfortable with that. People who were masked would be masked, and uh, we thought that would be okay. Uh, as the days kind of rolled on uh, towards the latter end of the week, we agreed to kind of pull back and go through this format for several reasons. One, we've always been consistent that until we test negative, anybody on the platform should remain uh, either masked completely or, uh, or not be present so that we don't uh, risk any infections towards other people. Being on stage, even though I'm further away from everybody, I just didn't feel comfortable later on in the week, and so we thought it would be, it would be consistent for me to stay away. Secondly, this is a model uh, that we've done in the past. We've actually experimented with uh, virtual engagement or, um, or being on screen. Um, one of the things that we love about Metro is that we're able to demonstrate some creativity and finding different ways in which uh, a person can uh, present the gospel. And so we felt very comfortable with this format because we've done it in the past. And so just, you know, by wanting to be more pastoral, wanting to be consistent with what we've done in the past, and because we've had so little lead time, we thought this was the most appropriate way uh, to preach to you uh, today. So thank you for your uh, just bearing with us as we go into the Word today. Um, I expect to be back at the pulpit in person uh, next week. The scripture today is Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22. We know that the Bible uh, teaches that the problem of the world is more than just 
education. It's more than just uh, economy. It's more than just our sociology or political philosophies, or it's more than just uh, cultural or racial. The Bible says that the problem of the world is based on a foundation of sin, and it's really deeply rooted. So as we've been going through the scriptures, God promised all the way back in the book of Genesis to Abraham that one of Abraham's descendants, one of his sons would redeem the world. And so each generation, God has chosen a son to carry the seed of redemption until one day the ultimate savior, the ultimate son, the redeemer himself would come. By the way, that is why we observe Advent. We're awaiting that redeemer and his return. This redeemer would restore all that's broken, all that is wrong with the world. Advent is about the coming of the king, God's chosen son, that king. And if you're newer visiting today, again, I know it's an unusual format, but this is why Christmas is such a big deal in the church. We're looking behind at the promise of the coming of the king. And that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his birth. And so now, based on that event, we are now looking ahead at the promise of his return. It's why we celebrate Christ. It's why we celebrate and why we give during Christmas because Christ was given to God's people. Now, Isaac was born in Abraham's generation. And uh, so from Isaac, we go uh, into Jacob's life. And Jacob, he's obsessed with the blessing. He's obsessed with being this chosen son because that meant God's favor was on him. That meant prosperity for him. You see, Jacob was one of two sons, the two sons of Isaac. They were twins. But their mother, Rebekah, she hears a prophecy that the elder would serve the younger. You see, Jacob was the younger uh, just by a, a, a minute, I would say. He came out second. In other words, Jacob was the one that God would bless, the younger and uh, as they grew, however, Isaac, the father, favored Esau. It was customary to favor the elder son. He favored the elder son. And, and so Jacob, he grew up desperate for his father's love, for his father's attention. He felt worthless without the attention of his father. So one day, what does he do? He dresses up as his brother. He dresses up like Esau. Esau was athletic, he was strong, he was masculine, he was a dynamic leader. And Jacob, as a result, he tricks his father, who is old and blind at this stage in his life, and he steals that blessing that was intended for Esau. And as a result, Esau, he wants to kill Jacob. He wants to kill his brother. And so Jacob, he had to leave. He had to leave his home. So today we're going to look at four things. This passage talks about Jacob's confusion Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder, and then what does all mean? Jacob's confusion, his dream, his ladder, and then the meaning behind it all. First, we're going to look at Jacob's confusion. In verses 10 to 11, Jacob reaches a certain place. That's what it says in the text. In other words, we don't really know where he was. It was an insignificant, irrelevant place, which means, in a sense, Jacob is in the middle of nowhere. And that was likely a metaphor for his life. The text says that he took one of the stones that was there and used it as a pillow. Now think about this. You would use a jacket. You would use a bag. You would use your socks. 
anything if you had it, which means that Jacob didn't have anything. He was bankrupt. You know why? Because in ancient times, your family was your life. Your culture was your life. You never left home. You never left your village, but he did. He left his family. He left his home. Family represented your wealth, so that meant Jacob was penniless. Family represented a place. Family represented a home, and so Jacob was homeless. Your family, your culture, your village, that was your security. So Jacob was defenseless. He was friendless. In verses 10 to 11, he stopped for a night because the sun had set. But that's a metaphor. It's as if the sun had set on his entire life. Jacob's life was empty. It was dark. It was uncertain. What we do to get the blessing in our lives, we're willing to leave our families We're willing to break ties with people, break relationships. We're willing to lie and cheat and steal, step over people, step over friends, step over brothers to get ahead. We do this because we think it's going to increase our options and freedom and potential and happiness. But here, because he lied, because he manipulated people, the closest people in his life, because he stole, Jacob lost everything. And so... The blessing, it just seems so far out of reach for Jacob. Because God himself seems so far out of reach for Jacob. And so Jacob is confused about God, and he's alone. And his life, God, the blessing, it just seems closed to him. Heaven seemed closed to Jacob. Now remember, at this point, Jacob wasn't seeking God. He wasn't praying to God. He wasn't repenting to God. He wasn't even acknowledging God. You don't ever see Jacob at the stage praying. You don't see him asking God for help or asking God for rescue or asking God for mercy. But then he has this dream. That's the second point. In this dream, Jacob encounters God. And in this dream, Jacob sees three things, he hears three things, and he's assured of three things. First, what does he see? One, verse 12, there's a stairway. Some would call this a ladder, but in reality, it was more like a ramp where the bottom touched the earth and the top reached heaven. Secondly, he sees the angels of God on the stairway. Now, the angels, they're the royal messengers of God. They're the royal messengers of the king. And so their job, their role is to proclaim. They were powerful figures. They're proclaiming and executing the decrees and executing the commands of God. And here they're ascending and descending on this ramp. What does that mean? God's royal power is on the move. And the angels, they were the powerful present royal figures of the presence of God, the power of God. Thirdly, he saw God himself. He saw the Lord himself. Now, Robert Alter, he's a very liberal scholar, but he's, in, he's one of the foremost experts in the ancient Hebrew, the literal ancient text. He says that when in verse 13 it says, there above the stairway stood the Lord, the text is literally saying that the Lord was poised over Jacob on this ramp. He was actually beside Jacob speaking into Jacob. The way a father looks over his child when he's sleeping. That's the image. In other words, God physically came down on the ramp and stood over Jacob, right over Jacob, and spoke to him. And there Jacob heard three things. One, 
In verses 13 to 14, he says, I will give you this land. Remember, Jacob was bankrupt. Land in those ancient times represented your wealth. Secondly, in verse 15, he says, I am with you. Remember, Jacob was alone. And because he's alone and he has no family, he was homeless. There was no family. There were no friends. And thirdly, he says, I will watch over you. Remember, Jacob was, he had no security. He was defenseless. Jacob is a liar. He's a thief. He ruined his family. He doesn't even, he's not even acknowledging God. And yet, look at the tenderness of God. Look at the shepherding faithfulness of God. How does, he assure, how does this assure Jacob? There, it assures Jacob in three ways. One, verse 13, God says, I am the Lord your God, the God of, the fa- the fa- of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. Now, in other words, what he's saying is, I am consistent. I am faithful. In verse 13 and 14, he says, I will give you and your descendants this land. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. In other words, there's a plan. It's been sealed with the same promise that I made to your father and to his father, to Abraham and to Isaac. In verse, in verse 15, he says, I am with you and I will watch over you. In other words, you are safe. You are secure. Jacob's in the middle of nowhere. Penniless, homeless, friendless, defenseless, vulnerable. And yet God is saying, you are safe with me. Think about the grace of God there, the love of God there. Is it because Jacob deserved it? No. Is it because Jacob uh, lived a good life? No. Is it because Jacob uh, earned it? No. Jacob lived a horrible life. Is it because he had great faith? No, he's not even seeking God. He's not even acknowledging God. Jacob's dream is telling Jacob that he was, he, he was totally wrong about God, which is why he was really confused in the first place. You see, when you're distant from God and then you're suffering at the same time, there's a lot of people in this room today distant from God and suffering at the same time. God seems totally detached from you and life is utterly lonely. You feel alone. But here, Jacob sees God's royal power and the majestic, powerful angels ascending and descending on this, on this uh, ramp. And he hears God's assuring words and he realizes there and then, God is not detached. He's not uninvolved. He's not distant. In fact, he's on the move and he's working and he's doing 10,000 things for his glory and for our good. Now, some of you have been betrayed in life. Some of you have actually betrayed. Some of you have been hurt by people. Some of you have caused hurt. Some of you, you've experienced a lot of loss. Some of you, you caused loss. And like Jacob, whether you are on one side or the other, like Jacob, you're wondering how or why would God be present here in my life? How and why would God bless me? Look at this text. Jacob isn't deserving of God. He's not expecting God. He's, not, he's actually running from God. He's not acknowledging God. He's not thankful for God. He's not praying to God. He's not repenting before God. And yet this is the kindness of God. This is the grace of God. He came down to Jacob for Jacob. 
For Jacob, God doesn't stand uh, on top of a stairway and ask Jacob to climb up. I mean, he can't do that. That would be cruel. Jacob can't earn his way up the ladder. So God comes down. God comes down to be over Jacob, to speak into Jacob, not because Jacob is so good, but because Jacob is so lost. Look at the tenderness and faithfulness of God. Jacob's a liar and he's a cheater. He can't ascend. He can't earn his way to God. He's not seeking that. He's not even repentant in the moment. So what does God do? Instead of waiting for Jacob to be in a place where he can get up to God, God came down to him. That's the meaning of Advent. Those 40 days that are set apart where we're celebrating and awaiting Christmas, Christmas means what? It means access to God again. We have access. It's all about access. It's about relationship. Not relationship in a way where we're earning our way up to God, but God in his faithfulness, in his kindness, in his grace, coming down to be with us. Now, the third point is then, what is the meaning of the ladder? In verses 16 to 17, Jacob doesn't wake up and say, wow, that was awesome. That was great. He wakes up and it says that he was afraid. He was in awe. He's pretty much saying, how am I still alive? And he concludes, this must be the gate of heaven. What is that? In Genesis chapter 11, the people came together to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. We call that the Tower of Babel. In fact, the word Babel comes from two words that are put together. The word that means gate and the word that means God. So Babel literally means the gate to God, the gate of heaven. The Tower of Babel is likely a big tower. It was a, it was a temple. It was a ziggurat with a steep ramp or a stairway that reaches to the sky kind of like the one that we see in Jacob's dream. And in order to reach God, you had to climb the steps, these very narrow steps all the way up to the sky. You had to climb the steps and you had to make the sacrifice and you had to pay the price and you had to earn the blessing. So the Tower of Babel, in a sense, works counter to Jacob's ladder. It's why in Genesis chapter 11, God actually comes down on the tower and actually shatters, breaks up the tower. Why was Jacob in awe? Because he was beginning to learn that the way to the gate of heaven, it works differently than what he thought. And it completely changes his view of God. And it should change our view of God as well. You see, every other religion requires you to ascend the stairway. For you to earn your access to God, you have to follow the rules. You have to listen to the teachings. You have to obey the teachings. You have to ascend but look at the like of Jacob, because he's so sinful, because he's so broken, he can't ascend on his own. And so part of the brokenness is that there's this insecurity, there's this vulnerability, there's this darkness, there's a sense of aloneness because there's this discomfort and this deficiency and this spiritual poverty. It wasn't just because of this physical poverty or his financial poverty. Jacob was morally and spiritually broken and poor. We are bankrupt. That's what the Bible is telling us. We are the ones that are homeless and without a Father, we are alone. And so the only way that we can climb the stairway on our own, and the only way that we can move up on our own is how? By lying and cheating and manipulating other people and stealing and stepping over other people. That's Jacob. That's us. And it only leads to what? 
greater brokenness, greater alienation, greater confusion, greater suffering. Every time you lie, every time you cheat somebody, every time, even if it's the smallest ways, every time you pad your resume to look good, you're trying to climb that stairway because you want some form of something, some kind of access. You're trying to get into something. You're trying to move ahead or ascend somewhere, and you feel good about it because you cheated the system or you got your way. But Jacob's ladder is not a gate to heaven. It's a gate from heaven. God himself came down. You see, Jacob is like us, and we have a distorted view of God because if you believe that you are the one that has to be the one that climbs the ladder, you have to earn the blessing, then you have to be perfect. You have to be righteous. You have to be acceptable before God. God. But you see, Jacob knows that he's not. He knows that he's a sinner. His name actually means deceiver. He knows he's a liar. It's by his name, and that's why he's alone. It's why he's so broken, but he's realized here that he had it all wrong. That's not how you get to God. By the way, that's why we're so dependent on our wealth. It's why we're so dependent on our careers. It's why we're so dependent on the approval of our bosses, our love lives, our parents and their love for us, their approval. That's why we're so dependent on these things as a sense of worth. And it's also the source of all of our overworking and all of our hustling and all of our anxieties. It's, It's the source of all of our lies and our doubts, keeping the story straight all the time. It all catches up to you. Here, Jacob, for a moment, he realized that it's only by God's sheer grace that we receive his love. You can't go to him. He has to come down. But this is a big problem for Jacob. And if it's a big problem for Jacob, it's a big problem for us. How could a holy God come down to meet me? Now think back. Abraham, he seeks God and God answers. Through a smoking fire pot. If you were here last week, you know that he came through a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. Remember that? In this dreadful darkness and terror, God comes in a consuming fire. Moses says, show me your glory. And God responds, I can't show you all of my glory. Because why? Because there's a dread and a terror. And my brilliance and my beauty is so brilliant and so beautiful, you will be fully consumed. So God shows him just his backside. Isaiah, he goes to the temple. If you read in your call to worship, he goes to the temple and the temple's filled with shaking and smoke. Why? Because he sees the holy God. And there he sees in the presence of God, he says, he cries out, woe is me. Woe is me. In other words, cursed am I. It's the terror. It's the dread. But not Jacob. Jacob's not even seeking God. He's not even thinking about God. And yet God just comes right into his life. How? How do you reconcile that? What does that mean? Centuries later, in John chapter 1, the people, they come to Nathanael, and they say, we found the Messiah, the one whom the prophets spoke about, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, it's just a certain place. It's insignificant. 
It's not important. It's irrelevant. No one important comes from there. And Philip says, just come and see. And there he encounters Jesus. And Jesus says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And Nathaniel asks, how do you know me? How do you know me? In other words, what kind of prophet are you that you would know me? And Jesus says, know you? I saw you under the fig tree. Now, we have no idea what Nathaniel was doing. We have no idea what he was thinking underneath that fig tree. But whatever it was, it was very private, but Jesus knew. And it, that alone convinced Nathaniel who Jesus is. He's a prophet above all prophets. And when Nathaniel realized Jesus' knowledge about him, and it became personal to him, he confessed, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responds. And it's very interesting. He responds, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You will see even greater things. And here's the key. Jesus adds, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's astounding for two reasons. One, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. The prophets of God, they usually share a word, a teaching, and then they usually close with, declares the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, or if you translate that into Greek, I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you. Another way of saying that is amen. They usually teach and they say amen. And godly folks around them would usually listen to the teaching, and after thinking about it, reflecting on it, gauging the consistency and the truth of it, they would validate the teaching and they would say, amen. In other words, this is definitely from God. This is of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. But here, Jesus doesn't end with, I tell you the truth, amen. He begins with, I tell you the truth. He begins with, amen. In other words, what he's saying is, I don't need you to validate my words because my words carry the highest authority. I am the prophet above all prophets. I have the highest authority. No one has the authority to validate what I'm saying but me. In other words, what he's saying is, I have the authority of God. I am God. But what's also astounding about this, secondly, is that Jesus is also saying, I am. Remember, in Genesis 28, here Jacob in his vision, he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder, on this stairwell, on this ramp. But Jesus says that the angels will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, I am the ultimate stairway to heaven. The one that Jacob saw, that was me. I am the gate of heaven. I am the stairway to heaven. I am and the, the access point to God. And notice, he doesn't say the angels uh, of God will be ascending and ascending to the Son of Man. He says the angels will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. They'll be ascending and descending on the ladder. What does that mean? Jacob saw the angels on a stairway. Jesus says the angels will ascend and descend on me. Jesus Christ is the access point. Jesus Christ is the ladder. He is the gate. It's absolutely astounding why. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is being baptized. And what happens? Heaven opens up and the Spirit of God literally descends on Jesus. God comes down, poised over Jesus, doting on his own son, 
And there he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's what he says. But you see, Jesus Christ is righteous. He has the approval. He has the blessing of the father. God is doting on him. Jacob had to steal it. He had to steal that blessing. When Jesus Christ, the son of God, he came into the world, that meant that God actually came down. And yet Jesus once says what? Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What he's saying is what? I'm homeless. I'm penniless. I'm in poverty. I'm bankrupt. And on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus Christ became friendless. And while he's crucified on the cross, Jesus Christ ultimately becomes defenseless and vulnerable. On the cross, Jesus Christ, he bears the full force of the wrath of God, the penalty that we deserve. And there he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I have been forsaken. Heaven is not open up to me. Heaven is now closed on me. I've lost cosmic access to the Father. God is my home. The Father is my heart, my ultimate home. He is my wealth. He is my security. But I've lost the Father. And now I'm alone and I'm bankrupt, which means I'm penniless. The Father has departed me. I am friendless. Heaven has closed on me. I'm homeless. This is the ultimate alienation. This is the ultimate terror. This is the ultimate suffering. This is the ultimate bankruptcy. Darkness, you know, while he was on the cross, darkness comes over the land. It's as if the sun actually set on Jesus' entire life. Why? For us. You know, later on in the book of Genesis, Jacob, as he leaves this place after encountering God, the text actually closes with the sun rising above Jacob. You know why that's possible? Because here, darkness comes over the land, and the Father forsakes Jesus on the cross. He does it for us. Jesus Christ lost the Father so that we could have the Father. Jesus Christ lost cosmic access so that we have restored access to the Father. Jesus Christ gave up his status and his wealth so that we could have ultimate status with the Father. We could be children of God and we could have ultimate wealth, the ultimate inheritance of the Father. Jesus became ultimately vulnerable and defenseless. Why? So that we could have ultimate security. God could say, you are safe with me. The centerpiece of Christianity is not a set of rules or teachings because then you're climbing the steps yourself. You're climbing the steps yourself to earn access to God. The centerpiece of Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus as the gate. He is a stairway. He is the ultimate access to God because he fulfilled every requirement. He climbed the steps. He climbed the slope. He climbed the hill all the way up Calvary. Jesus Christ and his cross is our true access point to God. Yes, there are times when it feels like uh, heaven is closing in on you. As if heaven is closed to you. Yes, there are times when we mess up in our lives. And sometimes we mess up royally. Yes, there are times when it feels as if there's complete darkness in our lives. But that's the prerequisite to receiving heaven, don't you see? That's the prerequisite to say, yes, 
I can't get there on my own. I have to receive it. I need it. The only way that heaven can actually open up to you is when you see that you've messed up so royally that you can't earn it on your own. And you look to heaven closing up on Jesus Christ on the cross so that you see God coming down to you. Salvation isn't based on what you've done. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus has done and what he does for you. It's not based on your merit or your record. It's based on Jesus' merit and his record. Look, if God would do this for a liar and a thief and someone who's broken up his family like Jacob, you don't think that he could do this for you? Look at the cross. When you look at the cross, there's your evidence. There is your explicit evidence. Every time you have a record, you have proof, you have evidence that God is for you. Unless you come to know Jesus, God will always be confusing. The Bible will always be confusing. Your situations and your circumstances will always be confusing. And heaven will seem closed and sometimes distant from you. But the gospel shows us that it's through the brokenness of Jesus that we can find strength. God works his redemption not despite our sin, not despite our brokenness, not despite our injustice or or the darkness or times of confusion, but through it all. And even through death, God can bring salvation for the entire world. He can bring life. You see that? God is on the move for his glory and for our good, and he is with you. What does that mean? Well, it means a few quick things, and then we'll close. One, If you live your life thinking that it's only about you, it's only about yourself, what you can gain, what you want, you may get some things and it may make you happy for a little while, but you're going to be alone and you're going to feel alone and it's the worst. Sin results in darkness and brokenness and alienation and suffering. Hell is reserved for people who only are going to live life on their own selfishly forever. Essentially, we choose it. Because if you live your life selfishly, so if you live a life of lies, you're going to become a lie. If you live a life of selfishness, it's going to shape you until it bursts you into a life of selfishness forever. But secondly, God is present right now. God is in it with you. That old hymn, Nothing in My Hand I Bring, Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Thirdly, think, why would God come to Jacob when he's not even looking for him, when he's not even asking for him? You know why? God is attracted to our brokenness. I mean, that... That gets me every time. You know, there are people in this room right now who are sandwiched between a time of giving, uh, sorry, a time of thanksgiving and a time of giving. It's a season. And yet that season can be a dark season for a lot of us. It's a broken season because it reminds you a lot of what you don't have or where you feel like you've been left behind or, you know, there's just a lot of darkness and brokenness and loneliness for us. God is attracted to our brokenness. You know what that means? If there's anybody you can be honest with, it's God. Because when you've got nothing, when friends have left, when you are penniless, 
spiritually or morally broken. Nothing but a rock as a pillow. There God is poised over you, assuring, uttering the most important words you need to hear, that he is faithful, that he's present with you. He's attracted to our brokenness. You can be honest. But when you're honest with God, that's what prayer is. Prayer is just being honest with God. Fourthly, are you confused right now? Is it a time of confusion for you? Remember this. Jacob wasn't seeking God. But in that confusion, that was how he started to actually get God. God spoke to him in a time of confusion. So if you're in a time of confusion, if you're in a place of confusion right now, why are you here right now? You're hearing the word of God. You're hearing God's promises. Trust his word. My advice, find a spiritual family to look over you. Plug in. Some of us, you've been coming here for a while and you haven't plugged in. Find, make this place that spiritual family that can look over you and speak like the presence of God over you, poised over you, sharing God's promises with you. Lastly, it's unconditional. Jacob has this amazing vision of the presence of God. And look at his response. It's actually an awful response. He says, I will serve you if you do everything that you promised. In other words, Jacob's service in that, at this stage, he still doesn't get it, not fully. It's still conditional because he doesn't get God fully. He's still going to God for things, and he's not going to God for God. And yet, does God take back his promise? No. There's no conditions. He says, I'm for you because I'm for you. He's saying, I'm for you because of my promise, my faithfulness, not because of your faithfulness. There are no conditions. You could be in this place right now where you're still kind of exploring and you're still kind of figuring things out. That means that this is a safe place. God's unconditional love and faithfulness is present and his royal presence is present. We're about to respond in song. It's an opportunity for us to reflect on God's faithfulness despite our confusion or whether you're uncertain or whether you're still figuring things out. You're in a safe place where you can encounter God, meet God, respond to God, and gaze at the beauty of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you. And it's an invitation for you to come to know him personally. We have something that Jacob didn't have. Jacob had a dream. We have Jesus Christ in fullness, and we know the whole story. So let's gaze on that beauty of Christ and the cross, and let's come back to him as encounter him and just, just reflect on the love of God during this time of Advent uh, as, we, as we close this time. Let's pray.